Welcome to With All Wisdom, where we are applying biblical truth to everyday life. My name is Derek Brown, and I am here today with Cliff McManus. We are both pastors and elders at Creekside Bible Church in Cupertino, California, and we both serve as professors at the Cornerstone Bible College and Seminary. And today is part two of a podcast we started last week on the doctrine of justification. We mentioned last week that this is a vital doctrine that Christians need to know, need to know deeply, to embrace. It's essential for our our assurance of salvation. And so last week we talked about definitions, and this week we're going to talk about how it is that God can justify sinners and how we receive that gift of justification. But before we get into our topic for today, we want to encourage you to check out withallwisdom.org, where you will find a large and growing collection of resources on a variety of theological, practical, and cultural issues that will help you make progress in your walk with the Lord Jesus. Well, on to our topic. Last week, we mentioned that justification is a legal declaration. It's forensic. It's something that has to do with a courtroom setting, you might say, where God the judge declares you righteous. It's not based on any intrinsic righteousness that you have or anything that you have done. In fact, it says in Romans 4, 5 that God justifies the ungodly, and he does it through faith alone, and it's a legal declaration. We also said that justification is an instantaneous declaration. You don't try to achieve a certain amount of goodness or righteousness over the course of your life and then be rewarded with justification. No, justification happens at the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally, justification is an unchanging declaration. God will not revoke your justification. Once you are justified, you are always justified, to the point where Paul can talk like this, that those whom God has called, he has justified. Those whom he has justified, he has glorified. God will not revoke your justification. And all of these three put together are essential. They're vital for understanding justification, and practically, they are vital for our assurance of salvation. We do not lose our justification. We do not uh, enjoy our justification based on our works. We enjoy it, as we'll see today, because of what Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, has done for us. And so we want to talk about that right now. You know, some folks have called this idea of justification, or actually the idea of imputation, what we're going to talk about today. There's another big word, and we'll describe what that is, but some have suggested that this idea of imputation is a kind of legal fiction, and we want to point out that it's not, it's biblical, but it's important to do so because we need to answer the question of how God can justify ungodly sinners. There's actually, in the Proverbs, Proverbs 17, 15, says that it, God abominates someone who justifies the ungodly and condemns the innocent. And so we have to explain, we did explain a little bit of this last week, we have to explain how it is that God can remain just and yet declare righteous people who have broken his law, people who have committed heinous crimes against him and against uh, people. We need to We need to establish how he does that. And an important word we've already mentioned uh, is imputation. God, we'll just say it briefly here, and then we'll go on to explain it. God justifies us, he declares us righteous, by imputing Christ's righteousness to our account. And this is important. These are uh, words of, of, of uh, uh, 
external realities that are outside of us so that our, our account that Christ's righteousness is credited to, this is not some sort of intrinsic righteousness that God infuses into us, but rather a reckoning that God makes by uh, giving us Christ's righteousness. And there are a couple of passages in the New Testament, both in Romans, where we derive this doctrine of imputation. Uh, the first one is in Romans 4, verses uh, 5 through 8, and I'm just going to read those. Paul writes, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And the words we're looking at here is the word counts, counted, counts, and um, in verses 4 and 5. And we see that Paul is saying that it's the one who believes who is counted as righteousness. And then verse 6, it says, God counts righteousness to that person who believes apart from works. And this word counts is the word that we've used that you can uh, explain as an imputation, a, a reckoning, you might say, that God sees us as sinners. We are sinners. But then when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he then takes that righteousness of Christ, that real-life righteousness. Jesus was a, was a man. He's the, the God-man who lived here on this earth for 30-plus years. He lived out practical, real righteousness before God, his Father. He never sinned. He was the unblemished, spotless lamb who then went to the cross, and he attained full righteousness before God, never sinning, always doing what pleased the Father, he would say. And so he has a perfect righteousness so that then when we are united to him, joined to him by faith, we get that righteousness. It's not our righteousness inherently. It's, a righteous, it's the righteousness of Christ. But nevertheless, God now views us as possessing that very righteousness that Christ has because we are united to him and he counts us righteous. He counts us righteous apart from works, as Paul says in Romans 4, 6. And then in Romans 5, 12 through 21, Paul uses a different word there. Uh, he uses the word made, which can also be translated as appointed or accounted. Um, not made in the sense of some sort of uh, form, forming, but made in the sense of accounting or appointed. And he says that um, in verse, we will look down, if you have your Bibles, you want to look down to verses 18 and following. It says, therefore, as one Trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners or accounted sinners or appointed sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus' obedience, the many will be made or counted as righteous. And these are this is language uh, that we've already mentioned of accounting, of, of, uh, of appointing, of, of status, really. And these are not words that are, have to do with our intrinsic righteousness, but rather the righteousness of Christ credited to us when we believe in him and are united to him. And so this is how God justifies the ungodly. And as we noted last week, God is fully righteous when he does this, because when he forgives, he doesn't just forgive. You know, there I've talked to some 
folks who are uh, adherents of other religions, and I asked them, how do you get forgiveness? And they said, well, our God just forgives us. And, uh, and then I try to challenge them and say, well, if that's the case, then your God is unjust. Our God, the one true God, is not unjust. He forgives, but he takes care of all the sin. He remedies or repairs justice, and that's what he did in Christ. Christ is our righteousness. God has a righteous demand. We have uh, a requirement, and we have uh, totally violated that requirement. We, we are sinners. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve punishment. That's what justice would would do, but God does forgive us. How does he do that? Well, he gives us the righteousness of Christ. Christ is in our place. We are united to him. He has paid for our sins. He has fulfilled all righteousness, and now we have his righteousness imputed to our account. Cliff, what do you want to say about this? That's some heavy-duty stuff. It is. Derek. It That's, is. And uh, so what you're telling me, uh, somebody out there might be listening, so you're trying to tell me that here's God, creator of the universe, holy, perfect, sinless, can't tolerate sin, he's the perfect judge, and then he, he looks at someone like you or me who is sinful to the core mm-hmm. and guilty mm-hmm. and actually deserves physical death and eternal death and hell forever. Yep. And then God, the judge, the holy judge, just looks on us and makes a declaration that we call justification and says, you are not guilty. That's right. As a matter of fact, not only are you not guilty, you're you're innocent. All right? Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. And someone, as you alluded to there, might think, well, that's not fair. That's completely unjust because God's skirting the law. He doesn't care about justice because mm-hmm. uh, where there is sin, there needs to be death. Yeah. God requires death. For sin. Right. So why are we getting off scot-free? And what you're saying is we're not getting off scot-free. We're not. Somebody had to die. That's right. Absolutely. And that's Paul's point in Romans 3, 21 through 26, that God remains just because someone did, in fact, die. God requires perfect righteousness, and there's someone who provides it 100% in our place. And that's where this big—you used another big word there, imputation. I did. And you didn't make that up. That's no, in the I Bible. Didn't. That is. Right? Yeah. You gave some translations for it, imputation. So as you said, uh, justification comes from the courtroom, Mm -hmm. and imputation comes from the accounting room, Mm. so an accounting term. Uh, I think some of your definitions there were uh, synonyms for imputation were reckon, you said. Reckon. Uh, uh, Credited to, Mm -hmm. impute, that's the old King James word, Uh, but that's what it means. So it's a transfer, right? Yes. so anyway, that's uh, important to keep in mind the distinction of those terms. But justification is made possible by the work of imputation. That's right. Okay. That's right. And uh, an important piece to this and something we don't want to forget, we don't want these things to become abstract and yep. uh, kind of out there. And the way we keep them from becoming abstract is is by following uh, the, the the logic of Scripture. And we are to understand these things, I think, in union with Christ. So we need the benefits that Christ has uh, accomplished for us. How do we get them? We get them no other way except for being united to him. So we're united to him by faith. His death has benefited us now. His righteousness benefits us now um, because we are united to a person, and that person has accomplished all righteousness in our place. That's why we receive, well, that's why we're counted righteous, imputed, or whatever words you would like to use, whatever synonym you would like to use. So we are 
uh, imputed with the righteousness of Christ. We have Christ's righteousness credited to us because we are united to him. Uh, Derek, can you maybe go to, I mean, there's a lot of verses we could go to, uh, but I think 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is a good one. And just explain this a little further, this imputation thing. Sure. Well, this is a, a wonderful verse. Um, it's a verse that has caused many to uh, describe it as the great exchange. And uh, the great exchange goes like this. We have sin, and that sin uh, will only get us judgment. Christ has righteousness, and that will get us right standing with God. But how do we, how do we get that righteousness? Well, here you have in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, for, for our sake, he, that's God, made him to be sin who knew no sin. So God didn't make Jesus intrinsically unrighteous. Unrighteous. He didn't make Jesus intrinsically a sinner. That's not what the text is saying. But rather that he laid upon Jesus our sin and reckoned him as, as uh, uh, a sinner, though Jesus was never in any way sin, a sinner, even while on the cross bearing our sin. And why did he do all that? He and did treated him like a sinner. Treated, exactly, treated him like a sinner. Not only that, treated him like the worst sinner the world has yeah. ever seen. And how do you treat a sinner? You kill him. That's right. That's right. So God makes him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Why did he do that? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here again, this is not being, uh, the, the idea here is not that we're made somehow intrinsically righteous. Rather, this is a, the great exchange. This is our sin being counted to Jesus, his righteousness being counted to us, so that we might be the righteousness of God, or become the righteousness of God. So that's what theologians have called the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin, we take his righteousness. So his his righteousness, meaning the fact that God the Father looks at Christ as completely innocent, mm-hmm. sinless, perfect, holy, just by virtue of who he is, but also because in his 33 years of life, he was 100% obedient mm-hmm to God's requirements in the law. That's right. And all of that righteousness, obedience, sinlessness, righteous character of Christ is literally imputed to our account, credited to our account. That's right. And then the the flip side of that is all our yucky sin is transferred onto Jesus. That's right. As our substitute. Right. Right? As the Lamb of God. So that's a is that the vicarious atonement, the substitutionary atonement? That's right, substitutionary atonement. That's an important word, that substitution word, because Christ steps in our place. Like you said earlier, we deserve death. Sinners deserve death. And so a death has to occur. And so Jesus takes that death in our place, bearing our punishment on the cross. And that's that's precisely what happened. And then what you mentioned about the, the righteousness that Jesus uh, attained in his life, uh, his earthly ministry, his earthly life, never sinning, uh, always doing all that the Father uh, wanted and required. Uh, the law can be summed up as loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus did that perfectly at every single single moment during his entire life. So all that he did, not only was he innocent, but he was positively pleasing the Father 
at every moment, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And now being we receive that righteousness in this great exchange, wonder of wonders, and now God views us as though we have done all of that. We didn't actually do all that. Yep. But that's how God views us. Yeah. So th- that's why we call it positional righteousness yeah. and not practical righteousness. Right. So would you say, is it legitimate to think that because of God's justification, his legal declaration of us to be not guilty mm-hmm. through the work of imputation of imputing our sins on Christ mm-hmm. and then crushing him mm-hmm. on the cross with that double exchange of then... Uh, putting all of Christ's righteousness on us positionally. Yeah. This, so we have positional righteousness. That is our standing before God as our Father. Yeah. So legally and positionally is it that that imagery where God the Father is looking at me as a child of God, and my status before him today is I am sinless mm-hmm. and as pure as Christ is himself. Yeah. In terms of your status before God and uh, your righteous status your justified status being declared righteous. That is how he views you. Um, I, I ask that question because I've had more on more than one occasion where right. I've different sermons. I've, I've actually said that or preached that and gave that illustration and I actually had either members of our church or believers come up and corner me after mm-hmm. the sermon and say, can you explain that? Because they just didn't believe that. Right. You mean to tell me that God the Father looks at me and sees the pristine sinlessness of Jesus. Yeah. And I've said, well, actually, yeah. yeah. Positionally. Positionally, right. Positional righteousness. Right. Don't confuse that with practical righteousness. Right. We still have sin living in us. Right. We still mess up. We still got to uh, go to the Father and confess our sin. That's right. So that our dirty feet can be cleaned, mm-hmm. like Peter, who mm-hmm. was already saved, right, but right. needed his feet cleaned. But I don't, um, so that's just, that is a truth that a lot of Christians don't realize. Yeah. And it's important to, to, to maintain that helpful distinction between positional and practical righteousness because we do also have texts in the uh, New Testament about God disciplining us and cleansing us and changing us and growing us, and those things have to happen, and we, we want them to happen. And, and, uh, but that has to do with our practical righteousness and, and things that need to happen practically. But positionally, you're right, God sees us as His very own Son, with His very own Son's righteousness and sinlessness. And that is really the only way that we can actually begin to take care of these practical issues. Because otherwise, Scripture says that we're actually under God's condemnation Mm. without this righteous standing. And so, some may not fully understand it, but you can't balk at it, because without this positional righteousness, then we are actually under God's condemnation, and we can't do anything in terms of practical righteousness. So, we can't get the cart uh, in front of the horse, yeah. in that sense. Well, this positional righteousness, perfect standing, this justification doctrine, this imputation—this sounds like good news. It is how, good news. How can I attain this? How can I have this in my life? Maybe there's people listening there who who don't have this reality in yeah. their life. They yeah. just—they're burdened with guilt. And so, uh, how can they attain it? Well, so this is the good news. I mean, this is the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel, and we want to make it clear because I'm glad, Cliff, that you're sensitive to that there might be people listening that don't have this peace that that comes with this knowledge of having a right standing with God. And so we want to point you to, point you to a couple of important texts. One I've already read in uh, Romans 4, 5, how do you receive this? Well, we want to make it absolutely clear, and if you haven't been able to um, listen to the first podcast, we'd encourage you to go to withallwisdom.org and listen to the first part of this podcast. 
because this is it's foundational for your assurance. You receive this gift by faith alone, not by any works. Paul labors throughout many of his epistles to make this abundantly clear. Uh, many times he says it, many times, many different ways, but Romans 4, 5 is particularly helpful, and then we'll go to another text in Galatians. But he says this, he says, and to the one who does not work, any works, religious works, good works towards your fellow man, any work at all, to the one who does not work for his right standing with God, that's what he means, the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. How do you attain this right standing with God? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. By believing that God justifies the ungodly through the death, uh, life, death, and resurrection of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Galatians uh, 2, Paul is emphatic, so emphatic, that he uses the word justification how many times? Three Three. times in one verse. In one verse. And he's emphatic that your justification comes by faith, not by works. So I'm just going to read this verse. It says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So it's hard to find a more emphatic verse than that one. Yep. You are justified by faith alone, apart from works. Yep. Amen. And it, it, a synonym is it's believing in the gospel. That's right. The good news. Yep. Uh, faith and the, and the uh, complement to faith is repentance. Right. Um, in Luke 18, Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the tax collector is a sinful, condemned mm-hmm. person, yep. yet they feel convicted by God. And the tax collector stands before God, puts with his head bowed, beating his breast repeatedly, saying, God, be merciful to me, mm. the sinner. Mm-hmm. That's all he said. That's repentance. Yeah. And it was between him and God, and it was a work in his heart that God graciously did. And Jesus commented on this repentant sinner and said in Luke eighteen fourteen, I tell you, this man, the repentant sinner, yeah. went to his house justified. rather than the other justified so justification comes by belief in the gospel and with that is acknowledging that you're sinful in need of a substitute that you Jesus and your right standing with God is not on the basis of anything that you have done or will do or fail to do but on the basis of Jesus' righteousness and his death and his resurrection alone that is glorious news well thank you for listening we want to draw your attention again to withallwisdom.org where we have many resources we even have articles on the doctrine of justification. You can check those out. You can check out a lot of other topics at withallwisdom.org. We encourage you to do that. And until we see you next time, keep seeking the Lord in His Word. 